danger. Greetings, travellers, and welcome to episode 68 of the Innsmouth Book Club podcast. As you can see today, we've taken, we're not going indoors today. We've taken you out into the wilds of Innsmouth Municipal Park. Uh, because it's a nice day, which makes a change. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Tim Mendes. And I'm the other one, Rob Poyton. Yes, an uncharacteristically sunny and bright day in Innsmouth, so we thought we'd make the most of it. Uh, we've got a little bit of a picnic lined up, so if you'd like to just follow us through the gate here. Well, I mean, that needs oil in, doesn't it? I, I don't suppose it uh, yeah, probably doesn't get much use, does it? <laughs> No, you, you don't tend to see the locals in here. You know, they they, they, they like the seafront. <laughs> they like the water. They don't tend to like the greenery. <laughs> and yet there's our picnic all nicely laid out for us. Now, just one warning, we will say, you see those trees over there that are swaying in the breeze? Well, you might notice that there isn't actually any breeze at the moment. So please don't go near those trees. Give them a wide berth. Indeed, yeah. And another warning, if you see a black goat of the woods, do not follow it. <laughs> right, with all those warnings in place, <laughs> let's crack on to today's story, shall we? Now, this is from an author that we've mentioned a couple of times, but I don't, this is the first time we've covered him. He was a very prominent member of the Lovecraft Circle, but one I feel that has sort of fallen out of the limelight a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a shame, really, because he did do a lot of really, really good stories, some of which were parts of the Cthulhu mythos and things like that. It was like this story where it has sort of links, but it was ne it's never been reprinted in any of the sort of big mythos anthologies or anything like that. Um, I think the only one of his stories that ever has is the Red Brain. Right. It's, it's very strange. I do wonder it, how much of that is due to the legal um, legal battle he had with the August Derleth estate. Yes, yes, that's something we can we can certainly get onto. Well, there, mm. there's a whole uh, <laughs> there's a rich <laughs> seam there to to mine. But we are talking about Donald Wandre, and we are covering his story today, the Tree Men of Mbois. Easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've been brushing up on my Swahili. Nice, nice. So Donald Wandre was born in 1908 in St Paul's, Minnesota. His father ran a rather large publishing company uh, specialising in law books. Donald started writing at a young age. He put short compositions into the school newspaper. He got a job in the, the circulation room of the St Paul's Public Library. So quite early on, he had access to a wide range of literature. He attended the University of Minnesota, where he became editor of the student newspaper and also contributed to various other university magazines and publications. It was about that time that he read Arthur Macken's Hill of Dreams, which he often cited as a major influence. And I, I guess in a sense, a lot of people have one of those, this was the story that got me started kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Like for me, it was the Willows. Mm. Um, and yeah, for a lot of people, yeah. I can, the thing is, I can see that because I've got a collection of One Dry Stuff and a lot of his stuff is dream related and based on dreams. In fact, the collection is called Don't Dream. Ah, right. So, yeah, even more so than Lovecraft, a lot of his inspiration comes from dreams and nightmares. So that really does make sense that he would be inspired by Hill of Dreams. And there is a scene in this story that did put me in mind of a, of a nightmare scene. Yeah. 
but uh, we can get to that later on. Yeah. So he started writing stories in 1926. And in 1927, I thought this was an amazing fact. He hitchhiked from Minnesota to Rhode Island to visit Mr. Lovecraft. That's a long way. Yeah. Well, if you fly from Minnesota to Rhode Island, that's 1,200 miles. Bloody So going by road has got to be, what, 1,500 miles or something? Yeah. Hitchhiking 15 miles, that's quite incredible. That is really impressive. You've got to admire the dedication there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if HPL knew that he was going to turn up or if he just arrived unannounced or, or what, really? Yeah. <laughs> just turned up on his doorstep. Hello. Um, so, of course, Lovecraft, being the genial host that he was, gave him the full, full tour of Providence, Boston, Salem, and Marblehead. And they also paid a visit to Maxfield's Ice Cream Parlour, where they sampled the 28 different flavours on offer. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so this is the thing that like, we've talked about before, the misconceptions about Lovecraft uh, being a sort of reclusive loner. Yeah. He, he seemed to like company and he liked going, to, and it's like he went out and did like stuff like that and sampling ice creams. It's like him going and choosing pens with Frank Bell that long, isn't oh, it? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So Wondry was a very active member of the Lovecraft Circle. I mean, he himself he had, uh, I think, 14 stories published in Weird Tales, 16 in Astounding Stories. So he was quite prolific as a writer. And in fact, it was Wondry who pushed Farnsworth right to print the Call of Cthulhu mm, because yeah. right, right being right was thinking about turning it down. And Wondry said to him, if you do that, I'm going to tell Lovecraft never to write for Weird Tales again. <laughs> awesome. How can you think about turning down the Call of Cthulhu for a magazine called Weird Tales? Just bizarre. Oh, no. And then as you alluded to earlier in 1939, yeah. Wondry and August Erleth founded Arkham House. So uh, something I never knew, he was actually a co-founder of Arkham House. Yes. Uh, and he did a lot of editing work on uh, Lovecraft's letters, the Selected Letters series. I can imagine yeah. that was a huge amount of work to, to go through those. Oh, can you imagine? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there was this, well, we'll, we'll talk about the, the falling out later on a little. Uh, he served four years in the army in World War II in Europe. And post-war, he didn't really write very much at all. He seems to have fallen out of it a little bit. Um, in 1984, he won the World Fantasy Award for Lifetime Achievement but refused to accept it on the grounds that the the bust, which was the Lovecraft bust, we, we've spoken about that before, was a demeaning caricature. Yeah. So he, he felt it was an insult to his friend. And he passed away in 1987. Yeah. He was a very interesting chap. We'll have to go dig into his uh, backstory a little more at some point, but we'll, we'll get on to a little bit more later on. But yeah, it's interesting that um, it was... One dry who pushed for Call of Cthulhu to get pushed to get through into Weird Tales because it was actually Clark Ashton Smith who pushed for Tree Men oh, right. to get right. into it. Yeah, yeah, because they had quite a connection those two as well, didn't they? Oh yeah, very much so. They had a very very long correspondence, and um, yeah, they met a number of times, and uh, yeah, it was it's like um, well, we'll get into a bit more of that later, but. Um, mm. Yeah, it was subbed to Weird Tales on Clark Asher Smith's recommendation and Wright accepted it. Um, it was published in the February 1932 issue. Yeah, it was, it was, 
Yeah, it was a, it was a favourite of Clark Asher Smith and August Derleth. And in the letters following that issue, they praised that story as being one of the, one of the best and purest weird tales that they've read in quite some time in there ah, sort of thing. Right, right. You know, they were like, yeah. finally, kind of thing, finally something good because it had been a bit crap, apparently. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> We've covered this before. Them two like to really moan about weird tales a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Although it was up against some competition in that issue because there was Rob, Robert E. Howard, The Thing in, on the Roof. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Which was one of his good uh, horror stories. And a Seabury Quinn story as well. They were generally pretty good. Yeah. Now, the story, as you might guess from the title, is set in Africa. To be precise, it's the east coast of Africa and the Congo and the Gold Coast. So I think the first thing we have to say, of course, is it is of its time. It does present very much that colonial view of Africa, though you had an interesting thought about that. Yeah, I did, because um, the way it's presented is a lot of it is uh, narration by a guy that you, that the the main narrator meets in a bar. Uh, it's almost like an umbrella narrative, really. Um, guy goes to a bar, meets this guy, tells him a story. And this guy who's telling the story is a basically your stereotypical colonial asshole, uh, And that's yes. how he comes off. So I think it's kind of intentional. And it is that's how it felt to me anyway, that it, it felt like it was like, you're not supposed to like this guy. <laughs> You know, yeah, and it certainly has very much that language of the time, and the local people are, are incidental to the story, aren't they? Really, there's there's nothing about them, or yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting because I, I mentioned to you earlier. I've just finished reading the Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which was written well not long before this, I guess, uh, maybe slightly earlier. And again, it, well, Conrad comes across as very anti-colonial. But, of course, the language in the story uh, and the people in the story have that view. And any sort of racism aside, I thought it's interesting how the jungle is always presented as this steaming mass of death and danger mm. and poisonous yep. creatures and almost, well, I, I suppose it is. It, there's no rules, is there? It's untamed. It's uncivilized. And yet, when you see jungle, I mean, I've never been to a jungle anywhere, I have to say, uh, unless you count Epping Forest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's some places out in Norfolk that are a bit wild, but it never really appears to me like that. There's obvious dangers there, of course, but it, it always looks more like forest than jungle, particularly in Africa. Yes. Yeah. It's dustier, isn't it? It's not like the rainforest. It's... Mm. So I thought it was interesting and that you can get into Robert E. Howard ideas of uh, barbarism versus civilization and all that kind of stuff. And I guess that's part of the colonial experience where we go around the world and we civilize these wild places. You yeah. know. In inverted commas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So as you said, this starts in a bar. Man walks into a pub. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I thought this was a cracking opening line because this reeled me in straight away. So you're after big game, said the legless man. What's your route? Now, straight away, the legless man. Yeah. So I suppose there might be a little pun there because they're in a bar. You know, that could be taken two ways. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> but straight away, I've got this image of a guy sitting there with no legs. And you think, oh, what happened to him then? You know, it's a really nice little hook at the start. It is, absolutely. 
Yeah. The, the guy replies, generally speaking, up the Congo to its headwaters, then inland across the mountains of the moon to Uganda. And you see this where he pauses, but I just want to bring it there. The mountains of the moon are near Rwenzari? Rwenzari? I have no idea how to pronounce that. I apologize. It's R-W-E-N-Z-O-R-I, Mountains of Uganda. The Mountains of the Moon is their sort of soubriquet. Ah, right. Because originally this was like a, a legendary mountain range that was thought to be the source of the Nile mostly from the writings of uh, Claudius Ptolemy, who was Alexandrian, one of those guys who was uh, a mathematician, an astronomer, a poet, a physicist, <laughs> you know, built yeah. model ships in his spare time, was a fisherman, chess player, one of those kind of guys. Um, and I, I think it was just one of those things that passed into legend until they actually discovered the source of the Nile, which, I don't know, my history's terrible on, on Africa. I'm not sure. Well, <laughs> there's another little trope, isn't there? The source of the Nile was discovered by whoever it was, Stanley Livington. Well, apart from the people who've lived there for centuries, one of those. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And it, the, the source of the Nile is one of them things that, that's just constantly disputed anyway, um, because there, I think there's about eight different sources of the Nile, according to, <laughs> according to the modern theory. So, uh, This is where we get our first warning. Yeah. The legless man was glaring at me with a curious mixture of fear, hatred, and warning. The expression that fleeted across his face was so strange that I halted in the midst of my sentence. And this guy tells him, change your route. If you go across the mountains of the moon, you won't come back. Now, our intrepid narrator, who I don't think he's ever named, actually. is a He's not, no. As a nameless narrator says, <laughs> nonsense. I've hunted tigers in India, panthers in Indochina, and rubies am- amongst the headhunters of Papua. I'm not afraid of anything that walks. I like the hunted tigers in India because that reminded me of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band song. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Hunting tigers out in India, which I'll put a link up to because it's splendid fun. Yeah. Interestingly, I had, a, I had a song in my head all the way through reading this due to Mountains of the Moon. It was Supernaut by Black Sabbath. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I'm going to climb up all the mountains of the moon and find a distant man waving a spoon. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link up to that as well. <laughs> we'll for a bit of uh, the, the Bonzos and Black Sabbath. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Start. Quality. <laughs> and I thought it was very nice the way he introduced this uh, legless man who's giving him the warnings. Because you think, well, this could be just some random drunk dude in a pub, you know, the sort of guy who says... Uh, it is the extra in the Hammer film. You don't want to be going up there, and it, it's that. Oh yeah, but uh, this guy sort of shows him his legs. You know, look, look at the st- look what happened to me. I went there. Look what happened to me. And I like the way narrator gingerly felt his own leg, as if to reassure myself that it was still sound. That was a nice little touch as well. That's, yeah, I thought that was a really nice touch. It's things like that that bring stories to life for me because it's stuff that you do. Right. You know, it's like it's like if somebody traps their thumb in a car door, right? You instantly clench your own fist, don't you? Because yes. you go, ooh, sort of thing. It's like sympathetic <laughs> sort of thing, you know? And the the man says to him, did you ever hear of the Angley Richards expedition? And our narrator says, oh, yeah, they started on pretty much the same route I'm following several years later, didn't they? Angley died of mal- malaria and Richards disappeared 
after some terrible experiences, lost both his legs. It's it's you, isn't it? <laughs> Very nicely done, that. <laughs> the penny drops. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really well done. Yeah, so he, he introduces himself. Yes, your memory's good. I am Daniel Richards. This comes to a shock to our narrator, even though he was sort of half expecting it. But you, I guess it's one of those things. You don't want to just randomly go up to some stranger in a bar and go, aren't you such and such? And then go, no, piss off. You know? And this is where we get the story now. So it's Daniel Richards' story rather than the narrator. And he tells what happened on this expedition and how he ended up the way he did. Yeah. Angley, like yourself, was after all kinds of game for museums. I government backing to chart the land formations and hunt for mineral deposits, a sort of geologist prospector combined. So it's like a dual mission. There's two aims, really, which I guess was quite common at the time, I, I would imagine. Yeah, they basically pooled resources for mutual protection, which makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You know, if you can double up. I think a lot of, like, it's like when you get the archaeological digs, they tend to double up with other things as well like people doing surveys and stuff like that. Because it makes sense to dig one hole as opposed to dig three, doesn't it? You know Exactly, exactly. Yes, unless you're a gangster. Yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was thinking of that, that scene in Casino where oh, they, yeah. they his tip was always dig the hole first. Mm. Because if you have to take the body out and someone comes along, then you've got to dig two holes. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense, right? I forgot about that. I haven't seen that film in decades. That's a, that's a great film. Yeah. So this is where we get the thing about the jungle in Africa. Uh, we made our way up the Congo all right, and a devilish trip it was. I've always hated jungles. Everything unhealthy seems to grow in them. Snakes that strike without warning, flesh-eating plants, and more poisonous insects and deadly vegetation than science yet knows about. So he doesn't paint a nice picture. It's not a scenic trip, is it? No. The thing is, though, he seems like one of those reluctant explorers. You, you get those chaps. It's like, um, because I go out walking a lot, and I, I like nature. I like being outdoors. We, it was like the other week, we were walking across uh, Beachy Head, and there was somebody walking through a figure. Oh, there's a nettle. Oh, there's a thistle. Oh, there's a oh, flying buzzing thing. He's <laughs> just like, you're not enjoying this, are you? <laughs> go back to London. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> go back to suburbia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, interestingly, um, our narrator says, our Mr. Richard says that they got their last supplies at Cola. Now, I actually think this is a mistake. And although I was reading some blogs and things like that on it when I'm doing research this morning, and I think the general consensus is that this was a, a typo because um, he's spelled it K-O-L-A, but the town, well, the the habitation in the, that region is actually coal. K-O-L-E. Oh, right, right. So, so uh, uh, yeah, you can see an A to an E is an easy mistake there. You can yeah, imagine. Right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they strike out across the continent eastward, uh, leave the jungles behind and start climbing into the mountains. And it takes them two months to get to their base at the foothills of the mountains of the moon. There they pitch camp and they decide to split the party for a couple of weeks. Obviously, they're both looking for different things, so... Mineral deposits are going to be in one place and, you know, <laughs> and of course this is the, the thing for every horror film, isn't it? Is don't split up. <laughs> so, I mean, in a sense, it's the fact that they split up saves him in the end, I guess. Yeah. 
Indeed, that's a little bit of a subversion, actually, now you come to mention it. But yeah, I always get that um, Cabin of the Woods. Right. You know, which was the, you know, was spoofing a lot of horror tropes. And there was a bit in that, I think we should split it up, and one of them goes, what? Are he fucking mental? <laughs> you know? He's the token stoner of the group. He's just like, don't be stupid. <laughs> Let's walk backwards in the dark. In the dark, yeah. But they do make this little uh, plan, don't they, which I thought was quite nice. In two weeks, we'd meet again at the camp. If either had not returned by the end of four weeks, the other would follow his trail to find out what was wrong. So there is a little foul-safe thing built in there. Yeah. And then we get this early one morning, in accordance with our plan, I and my six Noguchi boys started off for the mountains. I thought Noguchi boys has got to be some sort of boy band, doesn't it? Surely. It's, it sounds like an 80s pop band to me. Yeah, the Noguchi boys out of yeah. out of New York or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I've not been able to find anything out about that word. N- Noguchi. No. I, I, don't, I haven't got a clue if that was something he made up or he took for something. If it's a, a, even a nice term to use, it, it could be a disparaging term. I don't really know. Yeah, no, I think it's um, it's basically a local people, right. people right. from a local village, village of Noguchi. I get that, that's what I've got from research, but for, for, by all accounts, it's made up. Mm. So he heads on up into the mountains with the Noguchi boys. Uh, they cross the mountain into the moon in three days, uh, which seems quite good going. They find a pass, and. He finds sort of uh, what he describes as one great igneous intrusion that looked good for diamonds and several quartzite deposits that yielded gold, silver and mercury. There's many a fortune back there in the heart of Africa for any man who thinks it worth the risk. Mm. And then we get beyond the mountains of the moon, which is um, someone must have used that as an album title or a horror story. (laughs) Has to. Yeah, they have to. And here we get into this grassland but everything seemed strangely quiet. Yeah. There was a few, a number of buzzards the first couple of days, and one small herd of antelope, but game was surprisingly scarce. And they hadn't seen a, like a human since they broke camp. For me, this reminded me of a lot of Clark Ash and Smith's work, where they've crossed that Rubicon, haven't they? They've gone, they've strayed off the path into this almost, I mean, this could be another liminal space, you know? Yes. It's sort of yeah. this area... It's, it's like things like the plateau of Leng and all that kind of stuff, isn't it? It's uh, yeah. All these places seem surrounded by a, a sort of barren waste, don't they? Yes, where nothing yeah. lives. Yeah, and the the guides or the bearers are picking up on this. They're getting nervous, uh, and they become very quiet as well. And then that afternoon, I sighted a low hill to the northeast, and immediately struck off towards it. And this is where his problems begin. Yeah. And this is where this story gets real parallels with Robert Block's Faceless God. Yes, yeah. And and to be fair, a few other things as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Because we're on that yeah. classic, the locals know better than you do. Listen to yeah. the locals. They know what they're talking about. But no. Yeah, it's, it's just in the way it's set up. It really reminded me of that because in that story, obviously, you got the pith-helmeted, unscrupulous explorer who's basically a douchebag by all accounts mm. yelling and screaming at his local guides to keep going and keep going and they're like nah we're out of here mate uh, and you've got the pretty much the same thing here that he cursed and swore at them offered them money you know 
And they're just like, nah. So they camped at the foot of the hill, wakes up in the morning, and they've done a runner. And they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Gone. Which is the same as what happens in, in The Faceless God. Yeah. Yeah. Only only this time they don't take all the stuff with them. Because he wasn't that <laughs> wasn't as much as an arsehole <laughs> as that chap in that one. They, they do leave in some stuff there. Yeah. 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 And if memory serves me right, which it may well not do, wasn't the Root of Empire a similar setup expedition into the into the wilds? Oh, was that the, that's the Clark Ashton Smith story with the sort of Amazonian women, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. think you're right. I think you're right there. Yeah. I think they're the guides left him yeah. as well at some point. So yeah, quite a familiar trope that. But not unreasonable in the circumstances. No. Again, these locals or rustics or whatever you want to call them always seem to have more sense than the, the protagonist. Yeah, to be fair, it's like like I say, when I'm out in the wilds, right, having to wander around places I don't know, if some local says, you don't want to go down there, I'm not going down there. <laughs> you know? I'm going back to the nearest pub. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and make up a story. Exactly, about yeah, yeah. Exactly inspiration yeah so yes he wakes to a worse silence the next morning because even that night the the guides were very quiet not just the guides but the place itself and well i mean outside in the english countryside at night it's noisy oh yeah yeah rutting badgers <laughs> yeah rutting badgers shouting muntjacks we had something going last night a very strange bird call I said to my wife, it sounds like a Nazgul was landed in the field at the back. So re- I've never heard that one before. It was a really weird cry. One of the one of the weirdest ones I heard was because uh, we, we get quite a lot of um, foxes around here. Uh, it was a fox having an argument with a seagull. Oh, now that was a, that was a sound. <laughs> fox arguing with a seagull. I think they were fighting over a bin bag. You know, <laughs> that's a celebrity matchup. That is, isn't it? Oh yeah, fox versus <laughs> celebrity death match. Yeah. <laughs> fox versus seagull. My money's on the seagull. Blimey, the, the bruisers down here—they're enormous, huge uh, beaks. Mm, I wouldn't want to mess with them. I tell you. Well, I think that's what Tolkien actually based the Nazgul on. that might not be true but i'd like to (laughs) like to think it is yeah so it's a quiet night when he wakes up it's even more quiet because he's on his own but being a plucky chap he decides to press on anyway he's got his rations uh (laughs) he's got his belt and pocket stuffed with cartridges always important yep indeed there's a lovely line here when you've become used to the big cats and roaring carnivores of Africa, silence hurts. That's nice, isn't it? It is a nice line, that. So he's still determined to head for this hill. And when he gets there, he gets a shock. A low circular valley stretched below me with the hill closing it all round like a ring. Perfectly flat it was, perhaps two miles across or less, and not a blade of grass in it. The soil was dirty grey. And in the midst of it stood a queer structure glinting red in the sun. So, first of all, we've got a quite a strange, is this a, a natural geographic occurrence? I guess things like that can happen naturally. Mm. But that the fact that the soil is grey, I started getting ideas of like almost like a crop circle, you know, or a, a spaceship landing kind of setup. Yeah, well, that feeds really nicely into what's in the middle of it. Uh, a queer structure glinting red in the sun. At first, I thought it was a pyramid. Then I could have sworn it was an obelisk. Next moment, it looked like a sphere. 
I rubbed my eyes and looked away, thought of what I knew about mirages, then looked back, and there was the thing, shining with metallic red and never looking the same. That's a real, that's a real nice touch, isn't it? That is a great image. Yeah. That's your non-Euclidean alien science, because yeah. I'm, I'm assuming this is alien because of what happens later on. Well, yeah. yeah. But you can't even really make out the shape of the thing. It is that alien and unusual or perhaps it is some sort of predator uh cloaking type device going on or something possibly yeah no i I think it's definitely yeah just something that our eyes can't perceive Mm. because it's yeah non-euclidean it reminds me of very of like 60s doctor who you get a lot of them kind of images of things almost mirage kind of yeah well again you know it was the visual effects of the era wasn't it (laughs) the only thing they can do with the camera is make things look a bit weirdly shaped with the with the focus you know turn a color right up and the saturation right up. yeah yeah exactly the howl around effect yeah (laughs) but this isn't the only strange thing because something else gave me the shock all around it grew a row of trees maybe 20 of them or more the trees varied in height the tallest one at my left graduating to the smallest at my right. And every last one of those trees looked like a man standing guard. And one thing that got me about this was that's weird enough, but the tree furthest left is a hundred feet high, Mm. which is a pretty tall tree. Yeah. And he gets these impressions. I mean, you instantly think like, uh, Ents. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Sort of men in tree form. You know, he doesn't go overboard on the description, but you get enough odd things to make it sound like, yeah, these aren't trees. They're not natural trees. Something, there's, there's something else. Well, it's like, it's like the, the, the folklore over in this country, isn't it? About the witches in, um, is it elm trees or ash trees? I can never remember. Or yew trees. Yew trees. It's yew trees. <laughs> yeah, you'd sort of tangle, you know, the ones with all the weird tangly limbs and all that. Oh, right, right. I mean, it's just something that I've used in stories myself is, you know, creatures in like imprisoned in trees and things like that. There's a rich seam of that in fi- weird fiction, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Well, you can think the ash tree by M.R. James. Yes, indeed. Is, yeah. uh, is a prime example where the the tree itself there is more of a a vessel, isn't it? Or a home for, well, we won't say what lives in it or underneath it, in case you (laughs) haven't read it. But in in other things, that's uh, you get that a lot in English folklore. I mean, that's what Tolkien drew on, right? With the evil woods, the evil forest, uh, old man willow, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I actually found a tree that looked just like Kenneth Williams a while ago. In his in his classic oh, face, you know, yeah, brilliant. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll dig it out for you. <laughs> a Kenneth Williams tree, yeah, Matron. yeah. I, I I did a um I did a Photoshop mashup of it, put a title on it, you know, a Carry On Blair Witch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the mashups never end. There's always another mashup. <laughs> the king of mashups. <laughs> <laughs> they do, they don't. There's always another mashup. So he's got these trees, but he, he, he feels drawn towards this strange metallic object at the centre of them. And you have to wonder how much of this is his curiosity and how much is this thing having a, a direct influence on him. Yeah. He thought I thought I saw writing on it, but it wasn't the writing of any language I ever known. But then the impulse to flee comes upon him, 
Terror at some unknown evil gripped me, but somehow I went on, alert, wary. I didn't see him come. Maybe he was behind the trees or that wavering metallic structure, I don't know. But there he was, all of a sudden, not 50 yards away. And he gets this horribly wrinkled old man with a pasty face and a blank look in his eyes coming straight at him. That was like a nice little uh, jump scare in a film that would be, wouldn't it? This guy just suddenly appears out of nowhere and he's like, just heading straight for him. Yeah. Well, it's like a classic um, slasher movie thing, isn't it? That they, you know, they never deviate from that straight ahead path. And they just walk and they never run. They just walk really quickly. <laughs> there's something really unnerving about that. If somebody does that in a crowd, like just walking up to you really quickly, it sort of puts you, it puts you on edge for somebody. It's usually somebody with a bloody flyer or, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you some questions uh, about it? A chucker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah. So, of course, being the good chap that he is, you remember, he has pockets full of cartridges. He gives the guy a warning then gives him both barrels full in the chest. No effect. This is when he decides to turn and run. Yeah. And I thought this was an interesting little fight scene because uh, in conventional tales, the the plucky hero is going to overcome his foe, right? But this guy is, is already shot him and, and nothing. So he's certainly not going to be able to wrestle him to the ground. He does try. You know, he puts up a good fight. But it seems that this man, this creature, whatever it is, overpowers him quite easily and ties him up yeah just keeps coming doesn't he it's like uh le- leaps over him puts <laughs> basically punches him in the throat he does all- everything he can to try and escape but yeah in the end he's gassed he, he basically punches himself out and he's, he's got no-, no fight left in him and he's just tied up well it does say it, it's 10 minutes which is quite a long time to be in a to be in a fight. Mm, that's a long time. <laughs> so it's tied up, he's laying on the ground, gulping for air, and the thing walks jerkily towards and into the whirling red structure. In a minute, it came out again and over to me. I saw gleaming knives in its hands and other objects. Yeah. <laughs> this gets quite nasty now, doesn't it? This, this it does. It really does. Because yeah. he thinks the, the, the creature is just going to stab him. He thinks that's his lot. But no, it's a fate worse than death. Yeah. yeah. He basically holds him and pours this sticky sticky liquor down his throat that seemed to burn and scald like fire, then afterwards freeze and congeal the blood. So, yeah, he's been, he's been slipped a mickey. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he basically pours this down his throat and then um, the... The revenant, I guess, for want of a better term, uh, cuts long slits in his legs and then busies itself with other objects. Um, and this is where he sort of passes out. You know, the liquor takes hold and he's given a merciful oblivion. And this is the impression you get of some sort of surgery going on here, isn't it? The way that's written. Oh, yeah. it's not. Just, he's not just slashing at him. It's, it's all very precise and with purpose. Yeah, very deliberate. Isn't it? Yeah. So he wakes up and is quite literally <laughs> rooted to the, to the spot. Uh, it even requires a Herculean effort for me to open my weighted eyelids. I always like that phrase, Herculean effort. I don't know. It just <laughs> yeah. So when he wakes up, my legs were rooted to the ground. I was one of that circle of tree men. How long I remained in the days of horror, I don't know. 
Something snapped finally, and I waved arms that were ponderously stiff, feebly around, screamed myself hoarse, wore myself out trying to move even an inch. I stopped only when the blackness of shock and exhaustion swept over me. Yeah, it's here now that we get um, another character comes into the stories, another one of the tree men. Uh, I wakened again to an inarticulate whisper. Had my ears deceived me? I listened intently. Stranger, can you hear me? My time is almost up and I have waited long. So now this second tree man explains (laughs) the true horror of the predicament that he's in. Yeah. And I thought that was nice as well, because earlier he did mention something about as he got closer to these trees, he got the impression they had human eyes. Yes. Which, again, it's not fully described, but it's just enough to give you a a feeling of not natural. Again, yeah. This is something quite horrible. I think anybody who's walked in the woods for any length of time will see, will have seen a knot on a tree yeah. that looks, you know, uncannily sort of sentient. Yeah, it looks, looks like a face or something. Yeah. You see yeah. that paradoyal kind of effect, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, this tree man explains, this is no nightmare. It is living death. We are the tree men of Mboa. And then you get that classic question you get in a lot of weird fiction, particularly time travel stories. What year is this? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, and he tells him and the, the tree man replies that he's basically he's been there for 20 years and he's <laughs> the most recent. So that doesn't give people a lot of give them a lot of hope, does it? <laughs> No, no. And he says, I tried to warn you, but it was too late. So, uh, again, that's a nice uh, touch of horror, isn't it, where you're in a position. Again, this is what struck me about that idea of the nightmare. You've got that chase. You've got something that totally overpowers you. You fight back, but you're just totally overpowered. And then this, uh, this other idea of screaming and shouting a warning at someone, but... Yeah. You're, you're mute. They can't hear you. They can't see you, you know. So what do you think of this? Because this tree man says, my time is almost up. And he seems to be sort of drifting in and out of consciousness almost or being there. And the, the guy says, I knew he was going fast, that consciousness would soon leave him forever. So is this a deal like as one dies, you have to replace him? When a new one turns up, you can die kind of thing. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yeah. In which case, you wonder why he would have been warning him. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go, come closer. <laughs> then I can then I can die. Or is it just a case of good or bad timing on this guy's part? It's just happened to turn up as this tree man is, is passing on. Yeah, I think it's more likely to be that, to be honest. But uh, I like the idea of that. <laughs> that way the tree men could try and coax people in. It <laughs> <laughs> seems there's not a lot of footfall in this area, is there? <laughs> no, that's true. That's, that's why true. That's why it's been there 20 years. Yeah. But this is where the, we get the backstory of Mbois, which is the name of this, uh, of his assailant, the guy or person who tied him up. And yeah, like you said, a revenant, really, because he's been dead for centuries. Yeah. But he moves at the bidding of the master in the whirling flux, which we take it is the building, machine, device at the centre of the circle. And he knows this because he was told this by another tree man before him. So this story gets passed on. Each time someone turns up and gets turned into a tree man, they get told the story. 
And of course, he asks, who is the master? I, I was having sort of Doctor Who things here as well, obviously, with that name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course. Yeah. I do not know, came the slow response. No one has ever seen him. He came to Earth in the days before Rome, before Egypt or Babylon. He is of a different universe, a different dimension, and he dwells in the whirling flux. I know not why he waits or for what. He who has communion with the entities older than the Earth and titans that strode across the stars before Mu had sunk or Atlantis risen. So there's our double cosmic thing there, right? It's from another place, another universe, yeah. but that sense of time as well. This this goes back eons. Yeah, I thought this was interesting because obviously, uh, the you know, it's been described as a pyramid. There's been a mention of Egypt. My mind instantly goes to old Nyali, right? Um, and I was looking into this and apparently the tree men has been uh, used in Chaosium in... Malleus Monstrum and Secrets of Kenya for Call of Cthulhu. Uh, they, they've used um, the Tree Men of Mabois. Um, but it also crops up in the additional content to the Masks of Nile Athotep. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really find out much about that. So I know some gamers listen to this. So if anybody could actually confirm that and in what context... That would be really, really interesting to find out. Yeah, because I remember, I mean, it's been many years since I, I, I ran that. But Same. there was, was it Kenya or Nairobi, yeah. I think? And I know, I think when they reissued it, there were a lot of extra scenarios and, and bits. Yeah, and I think there. it's one of those. It's it could um, be a, new, a new one. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this does form one of the, the parts of the African mythos, which is quite sparse otherwise. Yes, um, yeah. There's a, obviously a lot of law set around <laughs> New England <laughs> yeah. and Europe. And is it Terra Australis? I seem to remember was uh, indeed that yes. was a supplement, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, and there's also been like anthologies like uh, Cthulhu Down Under and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. The Great White Land is another one, I think. Right, and the Arctic, Antarctic, of course. Well, <laughs> yeah, of course. Even Lovecraft yeah. did that. Yeah. There's been actually quite quite a lot in the jungles of the rainforest as well, usually usually involving Yig. Oh right, I was like an, an amigo as well. I didn't they have a base in Peru or something in the mountains. Was that? A, I think so. That's almost what I was kind of expecting with this, to be honest. When I, for some reason, I, I had the mountains of the moon reminded me of South America. Ah, yeah. And and amigo mines with the talk of the, the the gems and that as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's the um, the Arkham Horror uh, living card game, and I think there's a Mansions of Madness uh, expansion about Yig that are set in the rainforests and stuff like that. So yeah, and this is where we learn talking about that time thing as well that the first tree man was an Atlantean, the next an ancient Egyptian, and the third a Roman exile. Uh, that still leaves quite a long time for all these other ones, doesn't it? So It does, yeah. But I, 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 what are we looking at between each one? A hundred years or something? Uh, uh, longer than that, really, from Atlantis to Egypt to Rome. I mean, that spans quite a number of centuries, doesn't it? Yeah. Interesting. My, my brain, because obviously video games, uh, my, my brain started thinking about Assassin's Creed. So basically you've got all the different... All the like the characters from the Assassin's Creed games turned into trees because <laughs> it's the same sort of um, it's the same eras. 
Well, they're the, the classic eras of fiction, aren't they? Each of those, I, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And he tells him a little more about Mbois. Uh, it's he who gives the paralyzing drug and makes the incisions and bridges the gap between animal and vegetable kingdoms, which is quite worrying. But it is the master who directs the evil old one who came down from the stars in years beyond reckoning. That's straight out of Cthulhu, isn't it? That description. It's, yeah, it's brilliant. It's, it's classic mythos, isn't it? And and this was quite poignant as well. His voice trailed off. I think the effort of speech after so long a silence cost him what was left of his mind. He never spoke again. So we're not sure if he's actually died or if his mind has just gone. He's just not there anymore in that sense. Yeah. So the next bit reminds me of my time at work when I had a proper job. <laughs> <laughs> so the days passed, heavy, monotonous, only a dead grey expanse and a curving hill to look at. Only the silent tree men for companions. <laughs> I, I worked in an office in central London. I, I won't name the company, though I, I don't think they're still in business. But we were in like a basement office in central London. And there was, I think, about eight of us working on computers. And we had a lovely big window in one side that looked out on a brick wall about four feet away. <laughs> So that was that was two years of my life that I'll never get back. But anyway. <laughs> you occasionally got a scenic view of a cat or a dog going down there to take a slash. <laughs> the only good thing about that job was shopping at lunchtime because we were just off Tottenham Court Road. So Oh right, right. <laughs> but yes, tree men and women. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Rooted to their chairs. There's a story in that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Like a plantation. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's right in itself, isn't it? <laughs> so he falls into this sort of non-existence, doesn't he? He can't move, he can't yeah. go anywhere, he can't do anything. There's no one to speak to. And he feels that sluggishness gradually increasing. Yeah, he's, he's got a sort of internal conflict going on because he, he's sort of going delirious about this point. And again, it's where you get that sort of dream-like narrative going on but he's he's thinking on one half he really wants Anglia yeah. to come yeah but he knows that if he does he'll probably end up being a tree man as well so he doesn't <laughs> and he tries shouting at the other trees but none of the others are talking and he assumes they're totally gone as well uh and he, he sort of has this period of I, I suppose madness you call it really the sight of what i was the knowledge of what i was to become lay like a monstrous worm gnawing inside me he has some lovely turns of phrase, doesn't he, One Dry? Yeah. Yeah, that is good. That is good. And he even thinks he starts hallucinating because he sees Angley, faithful Angley, approaching. I wept with happiness, watched him with pathetic relief. But then he realises, no, this isn't a dream. And, of course, he starts shouting at Angley, don't come any closer. Yeah, run away. <laughs> and, of course, out comes Zambois. It's like a little... Um, a sort of cuckoo clock kind of thing. Isn't <laughs> he it? is a bit, yeah. Do you remember those, those great ones you see where death comes out and sides down the person? Yeah. One of those uh, sort of gothy cuckoo clocks. Yeah, there was one in a, a local pub in Macclesfield. It was an old fisherman's one. And you had like a, a woman come out one side and a man in a sou'wester come out the other side and he wallops her with a fish. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was really weird. That sounds very Innsmouthy. Innsmouthy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was almost like the Monty Python fish slapping dance, you know. It was, it, it was just surreal. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, did I just imagine that? Well, that's more interesting than a conventional cuckoo clock. Oh, yeah, definitely. So Angley being a stout chap as well, of course, gives uh, Umbois both barrels. No effect. So you think, well, Angley's done for, but he's got a machete. And I love this. <laughs> really, without any ceremony or anything else. Yeah, I saw Angley's hand swoop to his side. And as the marching horror approached him, a blade flashed high in his arm. And with a terrific sweep, he decapitated Umbois. Yeah. Wallop. <laughs> Crom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was also getting like echoes of George Romero movies. Oh, yeah. You've got this zombie going for somebody and then somebody takes a step back and wallop with a machete sort of it, thing, you know. He's obviously seen the films, hasn't he? Yeah, he's, he's obviously seen Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> Angley races over to him because I guess he can sort of hear him or see him now. And the machete flashes high again and he basically chops him out of the place. And this is quite horrible. I writhed in agony, yep. shrieked, twisted, and thin, thin trickles of blood and watery stuff oozed out of the stumps that remained of my legs. <laughs> yeah, it's grim, isn't it? Mm. See, this is the thing I got from this as well. It was um, When you put it side by side with Lovecraft, it's very, very different in terms of there's a lot of action in this. In fact, it is mostly, you know, action. Um Mm. and it's pretty brutal. (laughs) Well, that's quite Howardian in a sense. Indeed, That that could be Robert E. Howard, that stuff. Yeah, I agree. Your Lovecraftian guy would have, I don't know, fainted maybe, or had some sort of spell or something he could have done. I don't know. But yeah, this guy cut his head off. Bang. Yeah. But this prompts us. Now we get a little glimpse of the actual, of the master, the master himself, right? There came a strange high whine from behind, and even in my pain I turned to see. The red flux had come to rest, and out of it issued the titanic lich that haunts my dreams, with its tatters of vaporous flesh and the flapping black streamers that whipped from it as it towered to the skies above and yet sprawled over to Umbois and set the dead head back on the dead shoulders. Then it was gone. Yeah. That's a really, really good striking image, isn't it? Yeah. The evil old one who came down from the stars in the days when the world was young and the red flux was in its sickening dimensional whirl and there was Mabois stiffly striding after us. Yeah, brilliant. Yes. It, 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 there's the two horrors yeah. there, isn't there? The, uh, Titanic lich is such a good phrase. And again, you get a little bit of description, but not enough to give you a full picture which lets your mind yeah. fill in the blank. And again, that's where I got that echo of um, the faceless god and the descriptions of Niall Athotep in that, because he's described as this tall, just dark, almost shadow-like, you know, tattered shadow sort of, yeah. you know, it's, it's almost King in Yellow as well, I guess. I was going to say there's uh, there's a little bit of that, you know, the, the priest of Leng and all that kind of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it was a bit like the Court of the Dragon. It reminds me a little bit of that and things like that. Yeah, they all seem to be interrelated, these uh, these tattered entities. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> Either that or they just need a good tailor. I'm not sure. <laughs> but are, is it their clothes that are tattered or just the fact that reality is warping around them? There's the question. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. I like that. There you go. That is a good question. I don't have an answer. No, <laughs> I don't. That's the great thing about it. <laughs> Let us know, listeners, what you think. So, Mboire is back up and stiffly striding. Again, like the zombie thing you said before, very much that zombie image. Yeah. And uh, he says, drop me, save yourself, though he's got blood and foam forming in it on his lips. But Angley is a, is a bit of a hero, this guy, isn't he? He's doing really well. Oh, yeah. You know, he's still carrying his friends. They, he takes great leaping strides up the hill slope. But the foul horror was closer, closer, racing like a fitful wind, tireless as a machine. So what does Angley do? <laughs> he does it with the machete again. <laughs> it worked once. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's whirls around and wallops it again. <laughs> this time he does it from neck to navel, doesn't he? <laughs> Bisects him down the middle. Yeah, yeah that's real Robert e. Howard stuff, yeah. isn't he? Cleaves him, yeah. <laughs> In twain. Yeah. Not a drop of blood anywhere. Yeah, livid raw flesh from a frightful wound. And that's it. They basically make a run for it, or Angley makes the run for it, dragging him along, and we get this journey that he doesn't really remember much about because, of course, he's in a phantasmagoria of endless pain and agony there's thirst and hunger and delirium uh they make it back to the coast where poor old angley comes down with malaria and dies yeah such a sh- yeah i mean that's the real tragedy of this isn't it <laughs> it's yeah. just like poor old angley who's done nothing wrong and he's been an absolute hero this is, you know, he gets bitten by a mosquito and carks it. <laughs> he, he survives a centuries-old reanimated corpse, only to be brought down by an insect. Yeah, it, it that is really is the tragedy. It brings to mind um, Depeche Mode's blasphemous rumours. You know, I don't want to start any blasphemous rumours, but I think that God's got a sick sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> and when I die, I expect to find him laughing. <laughs> I mean, that's this, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> so our man comes to and he's in a ship's sick room they've amputated his legs almost to the thigh but he felt like he didn't want to return home looking like this um well one reason is the obvious disability but then as we find out at the end there's probably another reason as well yeah so he decides to get back to africa back to the congo and that's where he's going to see his days out so that's his story basically and that's why Richard says, "Don't go to the mountains of the moon." Yeah, exactly, it's pretty good. A pretty good reason, you know. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the narrator says, "Well, you know, that's an interesting story, I guess." Yeah. But yeah, you know, come on, a bit of a what's it? I calls it a wild yarn in a saloon on the Gold Coast. Yeah. You know, probably lost your legs in a fishing accident, really. But it's a it's a good story. Probably stand you a few beers, wouldn't it? You know. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, the reveal. Yeah. With a sudden nervous jerk, he ripped away the pad on his stumps. Now, do you believe? He almost screamed. That's what I got. And every month, they have to be cut off. Shuddering, I went into the night from the stumps of his legs. Pow thin feelers, like young shoots of a tree hung limply down <laughs> nice that's a nice ending oh. well not a nice ending but it's a good it, ending, it, it, it sticks with you doesn't it <laughs> yeah that's quite an image isn't it that one? yeah it's uh it, again it's a very visual story the way it's written um and there is some tremendously gruesome images in it which i think is 
you know, a testament to the writing that he could, because it is incredibly weird as well. It's uh, like you said earlier, it, it's one of the weirdest tales to appear in weird tales. It's, uh, it is it is on several levels because you've got the hmm. obvious turning a man into a tree, which I guess, as we've, we've said, is not an uncommon thing in, well, Greek myth and all sorts of myth. Yeah. People were turned into trees, flowers, you know, swans, yeah. whatever. <laughs> or Zeus yeah. turned into a swan, I think. I can't remember now. Um, and then we've had people turn into stone, right? People, we've had the, the, the Gorgon we were talking about on Strange Shadows the other week. Again, Greek myth. Yep. So people being transformed into something else is not unusual in that sense. But this is done scientifically. This is like a, an operation. Yeah. So this isn't like a curse or something. The 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 guy who does it has got instruments. He's got scalpels and little forceps, and I almost imagine him taking a little seed out of a test tube and putting it in his leg. And yeah, you know, there's a procedure. And it's the fact that this that this procedure is being carried out by a zombie surgeon, <laughs> who's who's in turn being directed by an evil lit <laughs> by a, like an abominable lich from the dawn of time, uh, who lives in a whirling flux. <laughs> <laughs> weird upon weird, isn't it? It is. It is brilliant, and but yeah. it never takes you out of the story. You know, it it, it all it all feels cohesive. It, it's a sort of a, a mashup of a few different genres because, again, that's a science fiction story or science fiction, as they would have called it. Then there's nothing supernatural in any of that at all. Yeah, the the master is from another planet or another galaxy. He's in this machine, whatever it is. Or is it a portal? Could be, yeah. yeah. See, this is it. I mean, we don't know. That's what I really like about it. And the fact that it's not really... He's described as an evil old one. You get that connotation, great old one sort of thing. And you get that cosmic. But he doesn't go into any more detail. He doesn't name it or say, this is bloody blur from blah, blah, blah. It's, um, you know, I like I like that in weird fiction, that it, it lets you fill in some of them blanks. It's like, but what is the purpose of the tree men? Are they sentinels? Is it a warning, or is there some other purpose? Yeah. yeah. Are they? Uh, is are they a life force feeding this flock? So it's, you know, there's a lot of questions, and I, I think the real strength of it is that it keeps you thinking after you've read it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And now you come to mention it, the the name whirling flux. That sounds more like a portal. Yes, uh, because flux yeah. denotes change, and whirling is almost that uh, that like a like a black hole or your stereotypical portal you see in in any film. Yeah, it, it, there's always some sort of movement going on, isn't there? In it, normally like a circular movement, yeah, like a, a whirlpool, circular, a spiral. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like Junji Ito Uzumaki, isn't it? It's vortex spiral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, and then exactly what? Why is this happening? Because it's not happening that often, because no one's coming here. No. I suppose the people he's got there, you, you've got some earlier people from outside, and then there's probably a few locals, but they quickly learn not to go there because they've abandoned the place. Um, so how did that, that last guy get caught? And is that last guy, is he speaking English if he's talking to him? So was that another explorer, perhaps, or something? Well, that's another question that I had. Um, because he said he tried to warn him, but he couldn't hear him. But now he can hear him. So is the, are they talking tree? 
I mean, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, to use Tolkien, are they, are they talking Entish, you know? Oh, yes, Entish, yes. Exactly, yeah. Perhaps they're barking at each other. Oh, matron. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I suppose in its weirdness, it is quite a tremendous story, isn't it? Tremendous. Uh, tremendous. Very well story. done. <laughs> tremendous. It's not a long story either, and um, there's a lot happens in it. Yeah, and, and even at the end, yeah. it leaves you with those questions. So I imagine the guy didn't want to return home because... Well, the disability is one thing, but would he have become uh, an object of scientific examination or would, yeah. he, would he have got a job in a sort of freak show? You know, I was going to say he'd probably end up in P.T. Barnum, you know, and all that kind of stuff at the time. Yeah. I suppose he could have just popped into the barbers and said, can you just trim me roots? <laughs> <laughs> you are a one-man pun machine today, aren't you? Bloody hell. I just think of him popping down to the local garden centre. <laughs> Just buying a pair of shears, <laughs> a pair of secateurs. Yeah. for a quick trim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Marry a woman called Prunella. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop there. Oh, dearie, dearie me. <laughs> so what do you think, dear listener? Do you have any answers to our questions? Or have you turned it off because of Rob's awful puns? <laughs> <laughs> Please don't leaf. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> stop. You're just, you're just throwing them up for me now. Yeah, so. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They just keep creeping up, don't they? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the portal theory makes more sense because yeah. you, you get the impression then the master can be popping between all these things. He doesn't actually live there as such. But... Uh, Perhaps he just wants a nice garden. It's, it's a it's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. Well, again, but that feeds into that sort of cosmic aloofness of the fact that we're insignificant to him. <laughs> yeah. It's just oh, we make a good seedling. Yeah. You know, yeah. maybe it's just an experiment or something. Let's see what happens if exactly. I put this into this. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do like the the servant as well because quite typically your your undead servant or your Igor or whatever is fairly clueless, aren't they? Yeah. You know, they they drag the person over here or they hit someone on the head. Yeah. This is like um, it's almost programmed to do this specific thing. Go out, tie the person up, do the operation. Now, so that's what I got from it. More like an automaton than an actual walking cadaver. Mm. It's, um, you know, is there anything of the original guy in there? Or is, it, is it just his body that's being used as a puppet? Yeah, you know? yeah. And putting his head back on was quite a neat touch as well. Oh, that was a great image. <laughs> a little right-hand thread. Yes, I can see that. That I can see like the um, the master character almost almost sort of glitching across. You know, he's phasing in and out of a reality sort of. Yeah. You know how that effect they do in films and video games where right. they sort of jump and glitch. Right. A bit like um, the what's her face at the end of the ring yeah, when she yeah. comes out of the well kind of bit. You know, there's that glitchy sort of movement, <laughs> and then picking his head up and putting it back on before vanishing. Mm. It's uh, yeah, it's a striking, striking mental image. 
But again, this one would be a good candidate for a TV adaptation, wouldn't it? That's a nice sort of would. 45, 50-minute yeah. story you could you could put in there. Yeah. A little bit of padding out, perhaps, you know. Yeah. Well, I suppose you could basically what you'd do is you'd just have some interaction between the two characters as they go in there, and then they can convey the, the prose in dialogue, you know, show as a rather than tell, you know. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that's our first Donald Wandre story, and I'm sure it won't be our last because, say, he was a prominent member of the Lovecraft Circle. But as we alluded to earlier, uh, there are also some, uh, well, some difficulties arose between him and, and was it Derleth himself or was it the estate? No, right. it was the estate. It was it was after August Derleth's death and it all comes to the ownership. It all comes down to the ownership. It was basically to the rights of the ownership of Arkham House and the copyright and things like that. Yeah, basically, basically, the case was Wandry versus Derleth Estate. Right. And it, it was, um, it was basically the disagreement was with Forrest Hartman, who was in charge of the August Derleth Estate after he died. But in the edition that I have, I have a book called Don't Dream, which is the collected horror and fantasy fiction of Donald Wandry, uh, which collects, well, like I said, all of, all of his fantasy and horror stuff. Uh, there's, yeah, a couple of dozen short stories, and then there's a bunch of prose poems, essays, some marginalia, that kind of thing. It's also got some illustrations that uh, Donald did, uh, one of which of the Tree Men of Maubois. Uh, uh, yeah, but the afterword is um, is basically a study on Donald Wandry, August Derleth, and H.P. Lovecraft by D.H. Olson, who is one of the editors of this volume. Uh, and in that, it contains the transcript of Donald Wandry's affidavit, which starts with a bit of biographical information, but it also it goes on, it goes through his, his all of his um, dealings with H.P. Lovecraft some meetings with him, Smith, and people like that, uh, and how Arkham House was formed, and all the rest of it. And um, there's a lot to lot to unpack in it. So what I what I think we should do is the next because there's a lot of stuff with um, Clark Asher Smith and things like that. Uh, so for next for another bonus episode, I think we should look at this and look at this affidavit. Uh, because there is some really nice sort of bits in it, even though it's a legal document, if you know what I mean. It's uh, an auto, it's autobiographical, and it's some really interesting stuff. Uh, and we can dive into the the legal battle in more detail there, because it is it's a lot to get through, to be honest. Yeah, that's cool. We'll, we'll but, put uh, that out as our next bonus episode then for for patrons. Yeah, it'd be interesting to to delve into that. Yeah, and I, I would recommend to anybody who's interested in. Uh, Wandry's work to pick up this. There is a companion volume, uh, which is the his famous mythos novel, which was put out by Arkham House, uh, The Web of Easter Island. Um, and it's been released under its original title because it was renamed for that edition. And it's the original uncut version that's been put out. And it's called Dead Titans Awaken. And that is also, it, it's, it, it's a classic for a reason, right? It's a classic bit of mythos literature for a reason. That's so, a good name. That's yeah. a good name. And I, I do feel he has been left out a little bit. I mean, we, we mm. mentioned that addition into the Call of Cthulhu gaming, 
but you almost feel that's partly because oh there's something African we can put in at last you know yeah, uh, yeah. and it, it was not a name back in the day I was familiar with whereas Frank Belknap Long even I knew uh, Henry Cutler yeah. but I, I'd, I'd sort of seen the name around but never read any of his stuff I guess maybe it was sort of difficult to get hold of back then I think that was the I think that was the biggest issue um because like like I said it's like that story uh, now is recognized as sort of like a classic of mythos literature right yeah. but for many years it was kind of forgot either forgotten or ignored and it's not been put in any of the major anthologies whereas like people like Howard and Block and Long and all them guys, they're all in Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, Tales of the Lovecraft Mythos, or the, all, you know, all of these anthologies, they're in there, and Wondrite isn't. And it's not, that's a very good point, yeah, because I think uh, you, you discover a lot of those authors through those collections. That's exactly right? how I discovered a lot of them. Because before, yeah. like before the internet and the access to like the archives of weird tales and things like that, yeah, I was sure. relying on what I got in these paperbacks from the local bookshop, like the old Grafton's and Panthers yeah. and all that. I was relying on them to to introduce me to authors and even new authors, right? Because yeah. Ramsey Campbell and and, and so on and so on, yeah, Ted Klein, all yeah. those people again, yeah, were in one or more of those anthologies, Indeed. so yeah. It does seem very strange that he's left out. Uh, whether that's a, a, an aftershock of that litigation process or something, who knows? We we can we'll we'll discover that <laughs> when we look into that for the bonus episode. Indeed, yeah. Because I'm I'm going to do because I'm intrigued myself. So I'm going to do some more reading into that and try and find out if there was any reason or if it was simply an oversight. Yeah, yeah. And it does make you wonder what else is out there, doesn't it? As we've said before. It does. It really does. That's yeah. another project for another day, but definitely uh, looking at forgotten authors will be uh, another podcast, perhaps. Uh, if anyone wants to start that, then do feel free. <laughs> <laughs> We've got enough work on as it is at the moment. Well, it's similar to similar to that episode we did with uh, on the women's weird, where we chose two yeah. forgotten authors of women's weird fiction. Maybe we should do that forgotten just another episode at some point about another couple of forgotten, forgotten weird authors. Yeah, yeah, weird authors. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's it for the tree men of Mbois. Uh, I'm sure you'll be glancing around at the trees here <laughs> in a new light now. <laughs> I see those ones over there are still moving. Are they getting closer? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. Now it's getting a bit darker. You know, the uh, night is drawing in. The shadows are lengthening. It's uh, shadows are lengthening. Yeah, I, I think it's. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, look, the, the, the bus is uh, just come round the corner there and is pulling up. So yeah, let's get it, out of it. Time, <laughs> time for us to go. Before we do, however, I just want to mention uh, we've had a couple of messages in. So we've had two comments on our Facebook page. One is from and please. Excuse me if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly. Yurik Devetta. And Yurik writes, Love the film. This is referring to Dagon, which we covered last time, of course. Love the film and have rewatched it a few times. Not sure if you mentioned this, but I like the fact that the town's name in Spanish literally means in mouth, more or less. Yes, in Boca, indeed it does. I believe it was shot in Spain mainly for budgetary funding reasons. On the note of the hotel escape scene in Dark Corners of the Earth, that's the old computer game we mentioned, that is high in my top memories of gaming. 
it was so suspenseful and you had such a sense of urgency but the assailant is largely invisible at first and only audible which adds to the feeling wonderful scene wonderfully translated both in that game and in this film uh yes we both thoroughly agree with that and i i did mention in my reply that that game is surely due a, a, a remake or a reboot at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I'd just be happy with a remaster, to be honest, because I don't. I played it recently, and it still holds up really nicely. Um, it just needs basically just you know, given a HD remaster, control tighten the controls up a little bit. That's all it really needs. It still holds up really well, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, a little bit of a debugging, basically, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. pretty much, yeah. 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 And then Eurek replied to that. On that note, the Sherlock Holmes The Awakened remake is excellent. It is really good. I played that the other week. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, you know my thing. It's a mythos game. I'm playing it. Yeah. Um, it's all part of research. <laughs> That's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. It's all research. Research can be fun. Indeed. Uh, yeah, really good. I was a big fan of the original. Uh, I thought that was a really good one. Um, but this re- the remake is above and beyond. It's done, done so well. The environments are great. And there's some, uh, some brilliantly, because they, they've added some more sort of weird scenes that was very much more Sherlock Holmesy than Mythos, whereas this is more Mythos than Sherlock Holmesy. Because ah, right. obviously the developer Frogwares also made The Sinking City. Ah. So it does feel quite a bit like the sinking city in when you're going around the environments doing side cases and things like that it's uh but yeah yeah tremendous game i would recommend it to anybody and you've played sinking city right so i I played the new the new call of cthulhu game which was uh, ambivalent about good in places but I've, I've not tried Sinking City. I loved Sinking City. Yeah, I, I, I really, I really enjoyed Sinking City. I thought it was a, a brilliant game. Um, <clears throat> you have to look at, overlook a couple of shortcomings in like the, the you know, the combat's clunky. Right. But but combat in survival horror is always clunky, well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's not a first person shooter kind no, of. No, exactly, setup, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and there's you know, it's it's. They're an indie studio, so it's quite. There's a little few rough edges, but the story, the environments, characters, fantastic. The, the fact that you, you get to go to like the fish market and talk to some innsmouthers about stolen <laughs> stolen cargo and stuff like this. It's just great for nice. like anybody who's into the mythos. So yeah, excellent. So thanks very much for that, Eurek. And uh, we've had a, another message in as well. Indeed we have, from Lee Williams. Great episode as usual. Fun fact about the car, it is a classic Citroen DS, and as the French word, excuse me here, my my French is not good, DS means goddess, there's another possible link to the mythos. Uh, Thanks for that, that was brilliant, yeah. That's nice, I like that, I like that. Again, that, that could be one of those happy accidents, or it could be a subtle nod. I'd like, to think the, the, I'd like to think the latter, actually. Yeah. The Mother Hydra is a Citroen. I like it. <laughs> I'm going to get a Citroen and call it Mother Hydra. There we go. <laughs> yes, thanks for sending that in, Lee. We do like getting your messages. And, of course, you can get in touch with us via the Facebook group, via Innsmouth Book Club at Outlook.com. And, of course, always remember, if you have a direct question for Dagon, 
then send that in to DagonSack at Outlook.com. Uh, we didn't want to bring that out into the open today, but Dagon Sack wouldn't fit in the picnic <laughs> basket. <laughs> <laughs> and it'd scare the children over at the zoo playing on the swings <laughs> over there. Well, I think they're children. I'm, I'm not sure. They're, they're quite gallows shaped, actually, rather than swings. Now I come to look at them. But uh, yeah. yeah, less yeah. said about that, the better. Time to leave, I think. Time to leave. Indeed. Indeed. So, yeah, please do get in touch and let us know your thoughts, any comments, suggestions, corrections. We're happy to hear. And we mentioned the bonus episodes there. If you want access to our bonus episodes for Innsmouth Book Club and Strange Shadows, you can sign up at Buzzsprout at our first tier of membership or on our Patreon page at three three tiers of membership. You also get quarterly copy of Innsmouth News. And if you come in at the higher grades, you get the chance to come on the show as a guest, either to stay at the hotel or just to come in and have a chat with us. And uh, in fact, we're going to be planning uh, a patron chat uh, very soon as well. well. We'll be putting that out as a bonus episode at some point. So, let's make a run for the bus. Uh, oh, just one other thing quickly before we go. I believe we're back at the hotel on our next excursion. Indeed, we're going to be joined by another esteemed guest. We're going to be joined by writer Simon Bleakin, who is also going to be one of our guests at the Innsmouth Literary Festival. Yeah, Simon's a great new, well, newish author and has written some uh, fantastic stories, really enjoy his writing. So we're looking forward to having a chat. So thanks for listening, folks. Thanks again to all our patrons and supporters of the show. Please like, subscribe, share, tell all your friends about it. Put notices up on trees. Tell the trees. Let the trees whisper to other trees. You know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes. <laughs> and with that, it's goodbye from me, Rob Hyten. And it's goodbye from me, Tim Mendes. <laughs>